Reading from the Gospel according to John, chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. As they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Depending on what version of the Bible or what study version version you are using, there may be a footnote attached to this particular passage of Scripture from the last verse of John chapter 7 until chapter 11, of, uh, or until verse 11 of John chapter 8, and it will say something to the effect of the oldest and possibly the best manuscripts do not include this passage. The issue is far more complex than that. Um, this passage is included in numerous different texts. It starts to appear routinely in texts that show up around 400 AD, which is a little bit late, but it's quoted in documents that go back all the way to the very beginning of the second century, and we have confidence that this actually is the Word of God. We're a little less confident about exactly where it's supposed to appear. Um, so. Don't let the questions that might be raised by those footnotes lead you astray. Um, John Calvin spoke of this passage. He knew already 500 years ago that there was some difficulty with the manuscript evidence for it, and yet, and, and I'm willing to go with him on this one, he said, the scripture itself has the, the tone and the spirit of God's word and antiquity leads us to conclude that it actually does belong in the Bible. So just a little bit of a footnote here. Don't let any question about the text make you wonder about um, whether or not this truly is the Word of God. I believe very sincerely and firmly that it is, and that God has something to say to us through this text this morning. Let's just take another quick minute to pray before we begin. Father in heaven, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive all that you have for us through your Holy Spirit, and that by your word and spirit, you would work in us all that is pleasing to you through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The woman in question in John chapter 8 was caught in the very act and that has some very particular implications for what was going on in this section of Scripture. James Montgomery Boyce, the pastor and commentator, wrote, Under Jewish law, 
as it was practiced by the rabbis in the time of Christ and later, it was necessary to have multiple witnesses to the very act of intercourse before the charge of adultery could be substantiated. And even this was to be considered under the most exacting circumstances. So there's something going on here beyond just the idea that some Pharisees decided to bring this woman to Jesus after hearing rumors about her character or things like that. She had to be seen actually committing adultery in order for them to bring her to Jesus on this basis. Thus, as one scholar points out, and here again I'm still quoting from Boyce, there is absolutely no question of the witnesses having seen the couple in just a compromising situation, for instance. This is not like, oh, we saw her having coffee at a restaurant downtown with a man who was not her husband. That looks bad. It's not that at all. He lifts the examples coming from a room in which they were alone or even lying together in the same bed. The actual physical movements of the couple must have been capable of no other explanation and the witnesses must have seen exactly the same acts at exactly the same time in the presence of each other so that their dispositions would be identical in every respect. This goes back to the law where it was only on the basis of two or three eyewitnesses of the same event at the same time that a person could be held accountable under the law and possibly put to death. So she must have been pulled from the very bed where she was committing adultery, hastily clothed, maybe just had some sheets thrown over her, and then pushed into the street while her unnamed partner, and this is important, is allowed to escape. Or maybe the whole thing is a setup. We know from verse 6, I believe it is, that the Pharisees and the scribes were looking for an occasion to trap Jesus in this whole scenario. Maybe they set it up. And maybe the man in question was granted some sort of immunity. We'll let you go as long as you realize that we will be bearing witness against her. Maybe he was in on this setup. We don't know, but... What a fearful situation for the women being described here, taken by a group of scribes and Pharisees. We think of them as a mob. We have this notion that there is this big crowd of people, and there was a bigger crowd. Jesus was found in the court of the temple, sitting down and teaching a crowd of people. But the ones who brought this woman to Jesus were not necessarily a mob, Scripture doesn't say, and it's far more likely that it was a much smaller group who was coming and claiming to have witnessed the act for which they wanted her put to death. However many there were, what is certain is there was no compassion to be found in the men who took her. They were not interested in her as a person. They were not interested in even helping her to turn from her sin and find her way back to God. That wasn't the point here. To them, she was only an instrument to be used against Jesus. So they pushed and they pulled and she was driven along through the city until finally they reached the temple. And there in the court, just as they had expected, Jesus was sitting in the middle of a crowd of people teaching them as he was known to do. But this time... These scribes and Pharisees who had tried on so many occasions to trick Jesus, to trap him in his words, were certain that they had him in a corner because of the questionable morality of this sinful woman. 
So they bully their way through the crowd and they come to Jesus and there they stand with her probably a little bit off to the side, no doubt embarrassed, wishing that the earth would just mercifully open up and swallow her alive in that moment. And when the crowd quieted, they spoke. Verses 4 and 5 in our text from John 8, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Verse 6 tells us the reason for the whole thing. I've already mentioned it. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. They really didn't care what was going to happen to this woman at all. They didn't want a charge to bring against her. They already had that, evidently. They wanted a charge that they could bring against Jesus that would undermine this teaching, this ministry that he was doing in such a popular way at the time. The thing is, they wanted a case against Jesus, but they did have a case against the woman because God's law clearly lays down God's good plan for human sexuality, and it does so right from the very beginning. We find these words in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. To clarify that a little further, Genesis 2 elaborates on this event, Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. That word fit in, that we have in our English Bible is a Hebrew word that means corresponding to or the opposite of. The, the person that God was going to bring to Adam would be someone who would be a proper fit for him in order to accomplish God's purpose in his life. Now I want you to note, God did not say and I highlight this because I have personally heard this so many times, being taught this way. God did not say, it is not good that the man should be lonely. We have this idea that somehow Adam, you know, named all of the different animals, and after he went through that whole exercise, he came to the point where he realized, there's no one like me, I'm so lonely. And God said, it's not good for the man to be lonely. Adam was not lonely. That's not the point here. Adam was the perfect man in the perfect environment, and at this time he had the perfect relationship with the living God who created him. To put forward the idea that Adam was lonely is to suggest that God built in something wrong with him that, that would lead him to just feel this loneliness in spite of his relationship with God. And besides, if loneliness was the problem, God might simply have given him a puppy. And the issue here is that God, if God was serious 
about the be fruitful and multiply part of the creation covenant, then Adam was going to need a helper corresponding to him, a helper opposite to him, one who could be united to him in a one flesh, lifelong covenant of love. It is not good that man shall be alone because without someone else, he won't be able to fulfill the terms of the covenant that I have made with him. Genesis 2, verses 24 and 25 say, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, we in the Christian Reformed Church are currently mulling over a report from a committee to articulate a foundation laying biblical theology of human sexuality. That's what's on the table at Synod in June of 2022. But if ever there was any question as to what that foundation-laying biblical theology of marriage and sexuality should look like, here it is in the very law of God. And yes, Genesis is the law of God. Genesis isn't separate from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the prologue to the covenant. It's part of the book of the covenant that God gave to his people. And as such, it carries the same kind of weight that the rest of the Pentateuch carries. So here it is in the very law of God. That's why Jesus himself cited this text from Genesis when he was challenged and was teaching on marriage. In Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 9, Jesus said, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And the Greek words in that statement, arson and thelis, mean very simply, and this probably comes as no surprise, male and female. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing ambiguous, just male and female, just like the Hebrew words that were used in the text of the book of Genesis. Therefore, Jesus goes on, because God made the man and the woman as perfect counterparts for each other, able only in a union with each other to be fruitful and multiply, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate." Talk about a foundation-laying theology. This isn't theology in the way we normally think of it. We normally think about theology as us trying to pull together a body of knowledge by which we can understand God. But this is theology as in God's knowledge about us, the Son of God, the Word, through whom and for whom all things were made, speaks here, in Matthew and in Mark, and he defines the nature of the relationship between men and women. And since Jesus Christ is the creator of all things, he has the right to do that. This is not a democracy. God is not looking for our opinion. He's not looking for our concurrence with his. He is looking for our obedience. Leviticus chapter 18, in that chapter, God told Moses, speak to the people of Israel 
and say to them, I am the Lord your God. By the way, that's the whole theme of Leviticus. It's all about holiness, and it just revolves around and around and around that concept. I am Yahweh your God. And so what he's saying in Leviticus when he repeats that over and over and over again through Moses is, yes, indeed, I do have the right to command you and to tell you what to do. I am the Lord, your God. I created all of this. It's mine to say. We sometimes look at the law and we think in terms of, well, if we can figure out what was the benefit that was associated with a particular command, then we can make sense of that. And we would stand behind that commandment. I've heard this many times over over the years. People will say, well, obviously they shouldn't eat pork in those days because, you know, the way pigs ate and what they did in those days, that wasn't good, and you might get sick if you ate too much bacon or something. Actually, the way they were handled in those days was probably better than the way they are handled now. But you can make that case. But then in Leviticus, you come to these commands like, you shall not wear a garment that is woven from both linen and wool. There is no health benefit to that, none whatsoever. This is God saying, I am holy, and I want you to be holy, and here's how. I expect you to live so that you will be holy in my sight, and he can do that. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall not follow my rules. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. I want to repeat that because I misspoke. It says, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. Now that, of course, applies to all of God's rules and statutes. But Leviticus 18 goes on from there with a fairly detailed list of what most study Bibles head as, as unlawful sexual relations. I have no intention of reading the whole list this morning. You can have a look on your own. But understand that this is the law of God. Whether we find this list of prohibitions to be pleasing or not, it doesn't matter. Whether we find it to be socially acceptable, it doesn't matter. It is the law of God. Actually, one Sunday, a long time ago, in the first church that I ever served as pastor, I, I did read Leviticus 18. The council had suggested that I needed to be sure to include the law more in the service, and through a chain of circumstances I won't go into, I arrived at church kind of late for me and a little bit distressed, and when I stood in the pulpit, I opened the Bible to Leviticus 19, which is what I meant to read, but my eyes went to the other side of the page, and I began to read Leviticus 18. It, it, it was an accident, really, but I was later informed by a member of the church that I had used the word sexual more in a single reading of Scripture than it had been used in that congregation for several decades inclusively. Um, and maybe some of you are starting to feel a little bit that way this morning already. The point here is God gets to define his own good plan 
for marriage and sexuality. He does that by stating the case positively in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and then he does it by stating the case in negative terms in other places in Scripture. And he gets to do that. He gets to define what is unacceptable. That is not the task of society. We are not looking for consensus. That's why the scribes and Pharisees, however disingenuous they may have been in obtaining the information that they had about this woman, came with a valid case under the law. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, you know this. The law of God states, you shall not commit adultery. And here is this woman who was caught in the very act. She had stepped outside of God's good plan for human sexuality in just one of the myriad ways which humans have invented to do this. And God said, don't. You shall not commit adultery. And not only that, in Deuteronomy 22, the penalty for what she did was to be death by stoning, as was pointed out to Jesus by the scribes and Pharisees. Now, of course, they wanted to test him. They didn't care if this woman walked away from this encounter. That made no difference to them whatsoever. They just wanted to test Jesus to see if they could find some charge to bring against him. See, under Roman law, the Jewish authorities did not have the right to put someone to death. So they believe that they have offered Jesus an insoluble dilemma. God's law says she must be put to death, but by the way, the Romans say we can't do that. Are you going to deny God's law in order to follow the laws of Rome? Or are you going to, you know, just go ahead and go through with the stoning? And then we can bring some charges against you to Pontius Pilate and the other Roman authorities. They believed that they had offered Jesus an insoluble dilemma, but Jesus was unperturbed. He heard what they had to say. He regarded them in silence. And then he did something very unusual. John tells us he stooped down and began to write in the dust of the courtyard with his finger. Now, concerning exactly what his, he was writing, there are as many different theories as there are commentaries on the Gospel of John. John Calvin suggests that Jesus was just doodling in the sand and by doing so showing complete disdain for these people who had come to him with what they thought was a very serious accusation. Others have suggested Jesus was busy sort of filling out her little black book and noting how the men who had brought her to Jesus were hypocrites who had been engaged with her themselves, and they were all guilty in this case. I think maybe, and I, I won't argue this point because it's not from Scripture, but I think maybe he was just writing the law of God, that he just started to write in the sand in the courtyard, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath, etc., and on down through. Because when he calls them, let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone. He's not saying specifically, let the one who is not guilty of this kind of sin be the one to cast the first stone. He's just saying, generally speaking, let the one without sin among you cast the first stone. But they're so sure they have him cornered. What is your answer? They demand. 
What shall we do with this woman? Will you stand with the law of God or will you not? And then Jesus stood up and they quiet down. This is the moment they've all been waiting for. And they were eager to let him condemn himself. Maybe he looked at them for a moment and maybe he looked at this poor, sinful woman standing nearby awaiting judgment. But whether he took some time or whether he said it straight out, he said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And after this statement, he stooped down and he began to write once again upon the ground. And this time, whatever he was writing, even if he was just doodling, John tells us that one at a time, the older ones first, they began to drift away until the whole crowd was dispersed and only the woman and Jesus remained. It's that statement, the oldest one first, that makes me think maybe he was just busy writing the law of God in the dust of the courtyard. Because, of course, the older we are, the more baggage we're carrying and the more we know that it is only by God's grace that we could ever stand in his presence. But I want to be clear about this. Jesus was not disregarding or minimizing the law of God, not in any way. Jesus is not saying, you people came with a valid accusation, but I'm telling you just ignore the law. Not in any way. This text can't be removed from those other passages of Scripture, like at, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, I didn't come to do away with the law, I came to fulfill it. And until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until all is fulfilled. In Matthew 23, when he's just about to lay into the Pharisees with, with some pretty heavy duty, or maybe it's just after he did, he says to them, he says to the people, he says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So do what they tell you to do. When they spell out the law of God, you better listen because they know what they're talking about. Just don't do what they do because they're hypocrites and they're trying to impose this law on others with no intention whatsoever of being judged by it themselves. Jesus did not minimize or disregard or cancel anything in the law of God. In fact, we know that part of the whole process and plan for our salvation was that Jesus would come and would keep God's law perfectly on our behalf. And not just the, the actual overt acts of the law. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, said very specifically, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not commit adultery. I say unto you, anyone who looks at a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already in his heart. Well, Jesus never did that then. He never looked lustfully at a woman or he would have been guilty of sin. He kept the law on our behalf and he kept the law here in John chapter 8 as well. That's why after everybody has wandered off, Jesus stands and he says to the woman, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? He did this because the law required eyewitnesses to proceed with the judgment. 
but all the witnesses were gone. We don't know why they were gone. They were just gone. And with no other witnesses there, the woman could not be condemned. Now consider verse 11 in that light. Jesus, having asked the woman, has no one condemned you? As in, and and this is the sense of the Greek here, has no one passed judgment on you by actually throwing a stone? You know, oh, you're here. You haven't been stoned. Clearly no one has condemned you. Now part of that might have been the awkwardness of him saying, let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone, and nobody wants to be the first one to, oh, that's me, I'll I'll just pick up a stone and toss it, because I have no sin. Could have been that. Could have been that Jesus convicted them by reminding them that they were all sinners, and they just weren't willing to make that accusation anymore, so they walked away. But in verse 11, when he says, has no one passed judgment on you? She said, no one, Lord. And then Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Now, of course, as the Son of God, Jesus could have. He could have condemned her. He could condemn me. He could condemn every one of us sitting here in this building today. He knows our hearts better than we know them ourselves. He knows the sins that we have committed, the sins that we have thought about, the sins that we're going to commit later this week. If there's anybody in the world who could condemn, it would be him. So in this moment, it's not him saying, well, I choose to disregard what you have done. It's him saying the law has a very specific process under which these things must be worked out. And if the witnesses have left, then I won't condemn you either. He could have cast the first stone as well by his own assessment of things. Let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone. He was the only one who could have measured up to that standard. Besides, maybe we've failed to know this. Notice this. But I want you to think about this and and just stop for a minute and think. It was the law of God with all of its impending judgment and wrath. It was these wicked, hypocritical men who took her from her bed and brought her to Jesus. Just reflect on that. Because this story has been turned around in so many different ways. Well, what happened to the man? That's not fair. Why was, you know, all those things. But I want you to realize that the fact that these scribes and Pharisees had a legitimate case against her is what made them bring her to Jesus. And it was all of that impending wrath that brought her to this place where Jesus could confront her graciously in her sin, and say to her, go, and from now on, sin no more. I know we don't like this, but it's true. God, in his providence, sent those scribes and Pharisees to condemn this woman so that in the end, his law could bring her to Christ for forgiveness and grace. That's how it works. 
The law is a schoolmaster, a tutor, a guardian to bring us to Christ, depending on which version of the letter to the Galatians you read. And that's the reason why we are considering this text this morning instead of a few weeks from now. Last week, a law was passed in Canada, and that law criminalizes conversion therapy, and I want to go on record right now as saying that if conversion therapy is linked to coercive practices and aversion therapy where people are being harmed in this process, then I support that law to this extent. I don't think we could do anything else. I also want to say I don't think we know at this point exactly where this law could lead in the future. And that's what has some of my colleagues running around with their hair on fire, as one person described it. I'm not concerned about that. I'm not concerned about what does the government intend by this law in this moment. If it bans a bad practice, that's a good thing. And to that extent, I'm behind it. The problem is with the passing of this law, the Parliament of Canada has officially declared everything that I said this morning about God's good design for sexuality and marriage to be no more than a myth. They say that any practice which promotes the myth of the way that sexuality and marriage is spelled out for us in Scripture is harmful to society and must be banished. And I guess that comes as no surprise. It comes as no surprise that this world is not a friend to grace. Because that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about whether or not this law allows us to proclaim the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Because it's the law that brings people to Christ, not myths, not little stories. The law is the very word of God, and it is his power for salvation to all who believe, because in preaching the whole counsel of God, including the law and the prophets, people are brought to Christ so that they can receive his grace just like this woman in John chapter 8. Put yourself in her shoes for just a moment this morning. No doubt, as the sun rose and she is drugged from her bed or her home or wherever she was, and being led through the streets of Jerusalem, she is thinking, this is the worst day of my life. What could possibly happen that would be worse than being caught in the act and publicly condemned and made to feel shame and guilt and all of the things that would have gone along with this? This is the worst day of my life, she's thinking, but in truth, it was the best day because it was the day that she met Jesus. And if she trusted his call to repentance, go now and sin no more, that's repentance, then she found salvation and life in his name. See, grace is not about God giving us permission to go and sin some more. Not at all. It's not the point of grace. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 tells us that this very same Jesus who said to this woman in John 8, neither do I condemn you, 
will one day be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Same Jesus. Neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. Repent, turn to me in faith, because the day is coming. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. The Apostle Paul wrote, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, that's all of us, frankly. Do not be deceived, Paul goes on. Neither the sexually immoral, the word there is a variation of pornea, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, those who worship idols, nor adulterers, like the woman in John 8, those who violate their marriage covenants in any one of a hundred different ways, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. We have this tendency to read through lists like that in Scripture and single out the ones we're not guilty of. And say, well... <laughs> Thank goodness, he's not talking about me. There's a similar list in Romans 1. I'm not going to read it. You can look at it yourself. But it includes some of these things. And very often is one that gets quoted in church services and sermons saying, see how horrible the world out there is? But among the list of gross, terrible sins included in that passage is disobedient to parents. God just puts it all right there in that same list and says do you not know that the unrighteous i don't care what kind of unrighteousness you may be guilty of will not inherit the kingdom of god and paul went on in first corinthians 6 and such were some of you and in reality he could have said and such were all of us that's simply the case some of you, some of us, were fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, those who practiced homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, and or swindlers. And if that was the end of the story, it would be an incredibly sad story. But Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 6 and says, but, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, and such were all of us. But if we have come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, we have been washed. We have been sanctified. We have been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace does not free us to sin, Grace calls us to be freed from our sin. And if we deny the reality of sin, either as a broad category or in specific terms, if we are reluctant to say this is sin, then we deny ourselves and we deny others the opportunity to experience God's grace. Suppose those Pharisees and scribes that day had you know, thought about doing this and then somebody said, hey, but wait a minute, that whole thing about marital fidelity, <laughs> that's in the law. It's just a myth. Who cares? Leave the poor woman alone. 
and had left her alone and walked away, she would have been denied the opportunity to come to Jesus and to come to Jesus in such a way that she understood there is forgiveness, there is grace, there is cleansing, there is freedom. That's why Jesus said, go your way and don't sin anymore. Later in that chapter, and we'll get to this when we come to John 8 later on in this series, is where Jesus says, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. But we have to understand that it is truth, that it is God's truth, that it is God's word, not a myth, not a fairy story. The very word of the living God that calls us to grace, that calls us to salvation, that calls us to forgiveness in Christ, that tells us that we can be free from our sin. As in Romans 5, verses 20 and 21, now the law came to increase the trespass. Well, that seems heavy. But where sin increased where the law had its effect and sin was seen as sinful and therefore people realized we are all sinners, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. John 8 verses 2 through 11 is just one more example of how this works. The law brought a sinner to Jesus for condemnation. But in coming to Jesus, she found instead salvation, life, light, and righteousness. And as the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8, verses 1 through 3, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. For God so loved the world, he loved it in this way. He gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. To this woman who was caught in the act of adultery then, and to every sinner, that's every one of us here, and everyone listening online, and everyone, generally, whatever the description of our sin, whatever the category we may be most prone to sin in, he says to every one of us who comes to him by grace through faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, declares in that grace, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, give us ears to hear the call of the gospel and graciously enable us to respond in repentance and faith, turning from our sin and turning to Christ and finding him to be the light of the world who gives life to those who come to him through faith in his name. Lord, help us to believe it, to live it, 
and to proclaim it always. This is your word. And Lord, we thank you for speaking to us in Jesus' name. Amen.